when we believe that bad circumstances or the opposition of a seen or an unseen enemy are enough to halt God's plans or negate his promise, promises to us, we are left paralyzed, discouraged, with a sense of having been abandoned. So we spiral or we give up. We disconnect or we ignore and escape. We grit and bear or we try our own solutions, assuming that it will make all or some of it well. And when those don't work, we ask ourselves, what am I left with? If God has left the building of my life, then how am I supposed to move forward? No doubt, Abram felt this way on multiple occasions, especially as he was faced with difficulties between a major promise just a few verses ago in chapter 12 and then another major promise coming in chapter 15. He's in between those promises. Now Israel, who is hearing this story told by Moses, certainly has also felt this way. They had only recently ended their 40 years of wandering in the desert after 400 years of slavery. No doubt many of us are in a position where God's promises seem like they have been buried in the rubble of our difficulties. Or where his power seems too small to count on and act on in faith in any sort of meaningful way. We figure out ways to try and survive hardships or we are lulled into apathy because we feel trapped in a life that seems like it will be nothing but monotonous. Where is God in this picture? The series of events in the chapters following God's big promise to Abram of a great name and blessing and of all the nations being blessed through him begin then to zoom in on specific events in Abram's life, all to make us aware of this. By overcoming seeming barriers to his plan, God invites us to proceed in faith, believing that he alone is the guarantor of his promises. By overcoming seeming barriers to his plans, God invites us to proceed in faith, believing that he alone is the guarantor of his promises. And I find it interesting that so many of the sermons that you hear from this pulpit at this church happen to land on this similar piece of ground. God's words previously spoken are trustworthy and true. Why is that such a theme? I think it's the case because it's a significant reason why we have this book in our hands. To convince us that what God has spoken previously is trustworthy and true for right now. That's certainly why we have the book of Genesis. That's one of the reasons why Moses is writing this stuff down. Because Abram and Israel and all of us need to be assured multiple times over that God's promises are true and trustworthy. I guarantee you that whatever we all happen to be struggling with or walking through now or thinking about or troubled by, they all have something in common. They, along with our flesh and the schemes of Satan, have a way of attempting to block out the light of the glory of God's promises confirmed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I love, I love this, the line that we just sang in, in that joyful, joyful song of, Hearts unfolding like flowers, and they're, they're, they are taking in the sun. That's what we're doing when we come before God's promises in his word. We as Christians live off of these previously spoken, precious and great 
promises in this broken and sinful world. But if they are cloudy and unclear and seemingly unreal, we flounder rather than patiently waiting for the better country ahead of us. So we need to have our faith stirred again to believe that our triune God is mighty and that what he says is true and trustworthy. So just two points this morning to assure us that he is true and trustworthy and what he says is true and trustworthy. And the first being, God most high is not hindered in bringing his promises to pass. In order to see the unhindered power and grace of God shown to Abram, we have to note that these events that we just read about aren't simply just events in Abram's life. They are moments in which God himself is active as noted at certain points in this story. We'll, we'll catch those. In other words, though, it's not just happening to Abraham. These barriers and threats presented to Abraham are first and foremost threats against God's purposes and promises to which he personally responds to in and through Abraham. This is the beautiful drama of Genesis that we've been watching unfold. Yahweh, the creator God, and meshes himself into the story of one man and his wife, who at this point are the sole bearers of his saving promise of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. So with that, let's, let's see first what stands in the way of God's promise, then how Abram responds, and then how Yahweh displays his power and grace in each situation. So the first barrier that they come across was the first one we read about in, at the end of chapter 12. Abram has entered into the land of Canaan. He's finally arrived. He has left Ur behind in faith, and he's come to Canaan, this land promised to him by the true and living creator God. Once there, what does he do? He builds an altar between Bethel and Ai as a sign of worship to God. He's brought me here. He is the one who alone is the creator. And that's in the north where he was encamped. But then he began moving southward into the heart of this country when it happened. Famine. Now this is the first mention of famine in Genesis, but certainly not the last. We may not have experienced famine before in our lifetime, but even a moment of just imagining months and years of sparse food, that's enough to unsettle us. How much more for someone like Abram who lives off the land? Famines in the ancient world were and still are in many ways synonymous with a death sentence. Move or die. Find food and pasture for your flocks and herds at all costs. But is that the only option for Abram? Genesis has multiple examples of famines. In fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all experience famines, either as a providential tool in the hand of the Lord or a sort of testing. In Abram and Isaac's case, the question is, will they respond in faith? Or not? Will they take God's word about this land and their descendants to the bank or not? Well, let's see how Abram responds. Genesis 12:10 says, Now there was famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. There's no telling what sort of famine this was, but scripture t calls it severe. It was a severe famine. You might imagine Abram's caravan of men and women and children and livestock 
rationing food and then asking at each town whether there was food to spare. It seems like Abram is forced to move on. He has trusted God all this way, and he's finally entered the promised land. But as he's traveling south and the famine hits, he flies right by the promised land as he makes his way towards Egypt. This is meant to foreshadow the next scene that it won't be a positive one. In fact, imagine being the wilderness generation of Israelites hearing this story. Egypt is a symbol of being separated from God and his blessing and his land. Egypt is not the promised land. Abram is departing from what God has called him to do and where he should go, to which we might say, give the guy a break. There's, they're all starving. They're in a famine. Of course he needs to move on and to provide for all these people. But that's where the rest of this story reveals that making our own way often stands opposed to walking in faith. This is where Abram concocts his infamous plan to keep the Egyptians from killing him on account of his beautiful wife Sarai, who, though in her 60s at this point, is still someone who Abraham knows will be seized for her beauty. If the Egyptians are told that he is Sarai's brother and not her husband, which is like a white lie of sorts, there will be no conflict and Abraham, Abram won't be killed in order for an Egyptian to marry her. Little did he know that it would be Pharaoh himself who is informed about Sarai and takes her into his house, dealing generously with Abram in the process. So this barrier to God's promise is twofold. There's a famine during which Abram leaves the land and the couple through whom God would bless the nations has been separated with their fate lying in the hands of a pagan king. Abram's rationale, as described by author Bruce Waltke, is better defiled than dead, which is utterly faithless reasoning for Abram. Not even primarily because it's a poor treatment of his wife Sarai, though it is, but because just a few verses ago, God promised Abram that he would curse whoever would curse Abram, which was a sort of divine seal of protection over Abraham, something that he's not trusting in this moment. Rather than take Taking action on that specific promise, Abram tries to force the outcome. He's trying to carve out a path himself through clever planning. Has anyone else taken that route before? Trusting in your own solution to get you out of something pressing, even if it, if it involves compromising morals or questionable tactics. Abram has heard God's words to him, but has failed to apply them in this difficult situation. Perhaps he thought that if he spared his own life, that he'd preserve the chance at having offspring, which, we, which would have seemed noble, except that he did so at Sarai's expense, who, as we'll see next week, is just as important to this promise being fulfilled as Abram. Where is God in this? Rather than speaking directly to Abraham, Abram to right the situation, verse 17 says, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, his wife. God afflicts Pharaoh, who is not neutral here. He is a pagan king who thinks himself to be God and assumes that everyone and everything is his for the taking. Doesn't the whole story sound like a little bit of a precursor to Exodus? 
Jacob's family experiences famine. They go down to Egypt. They're enslaved by Pharaoh. And then Yahweh intervenes with plagues to deliver his people. Rather than this seeming like a broken record to us, this story and the Exodus story are meant to assure us of a pattern in God's ways. He is not hindered by barriers to his promise. It rides completely on his faithfulness to his word to deliver his people, even if they are imperfectly faithful to him or even faithless to him. Our entire hope rides and rests on him. Barrier number two. As we enter chapter 13, the famine has subsided, and now Abram returns north, back up into the land of the Negev, which is the promised land, with his family, including his adult nephew, Lot. They wind up traveling all the way back north where Abram made his first altar of worship to the Lord between Bethel and Ai. I want to show you a quick, quick map because whether you're a geography buff or not, locations matter here, and hopefully this will help try to explain. A little fuzzy. Um, so uh, the, the dots where, the two dots where all of these converge is Bethel and Ai. That's where uh, Abram set up an altar to the Lord. Um, he travels south. If you go south, that's where Egypt was. And he comes back up to the Negev near the bottom there. And then he travels back up to Bethel and Ai where he made that altar at first. So this is, Bethel and Ai is where this, ta- this scene takes place. It's here where another barrier gets in the way of God's promise being fulfilled, but it comes from within the family this time. After the famine, Abram and Lot seem to do well as their flocks grow in this land where the Canaanites and Perizzites live. However, disputes start arising between herdsmen. It's the classic, these pastures aren't big enough for the two of us scenario. The problem here is that depending on how Abram resolves this, he could wind up wandering outside the border of the promised land again. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to us, but a theme in the Old Testament is that if you're not in God's promised place or a part of his promised people, you're cut off from the blessings of his promise. Think Garden of Eden. Think Camp of Israel at Sinai. In other words, Being outside of that place is either an act of distrust in God's word or a punishment for distrusting him. But listen to how Abram resolves this. He says to Lot in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 13, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Isn't it interesting that the older Abraham, Abram has taken his nephew as his own, and then he generously takes a second seat, and he gives Lot the preference. It's actually unthinkable, totally backwards in that day. But here, we find Abram acting very differently than in Egypt. Rather than trying to force the outcome through clever deception, he doesn't see Lot as a threat to the promise of the land given to him. Lo and behold, Lot looks as far as he can, and he sees the Jordan River Valley, and it's lush and has plenty of space, and he chooses to go east. But there are a few interesting things here. First of all, the Jordan Valley is compared with the Garden of the Lord, Eden. 
So it's a bit of a callback to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's like paradise. So we'll look at this map again really quick uh, from the two dots of Bethel and Ai. Um, east is where, uh, the green arrow is where Lot goes. Lot goes east towards, toward that river and the Dead Sea. Um, that's the direction that he chooses to go. When Adam and Eve were driven out of that garden of Eden, do you know which direction they were driven out? East. Abram was brought to the promised land as God's gracious effort to bring his people back to a place of flourishing and relationship. Going east, away from the promised land, is symbolic for departing and going off into idolatrous or dangerous territory. We know this because here, east is associated with a soon-to-be-important location, Sodom, a city of which Moses writes, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot is not acting in, on faith like Abram. He's choosing the fruitfulness of the land, no matter what the consequences are, even if it means living in Sodom. Consider this a foreshadowing not only of what happens to Lot and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah, but also what happens in the very next chapter. But before we get there, we want to see how, how does God respond to Abram giving up his spot, giving Lot the preference. He responds by rewarding him and blessing him again. Chapter, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. God has further established the borders of the land where his covenant people will live as a direct result of his faithfulness to his own promises. Once again, the barrier presented here is not enough to halt God in bringing his promise to pass. The last barrier comes in the form of war. This is the first war mentioned in Genesis, hinting that once again the wickedness of man is great on the earth, like the days before the flood. The need for a permanent solution for the problem of man's sin against God still remains, though the hope for the one who would crush the head of the serpent lives in the form of this promise that God made to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So war in chapter 14. In this section, Moses catalogs several kings from the north who sweep into the land of Canaan, conquering as they go. And the last time I'll show, show the map here. Um, these, all these kings originated from up north. See the red line? It's coming down, and then it's going back up. That's where they came from. They came and swept down through, and on their way up, that's where the drama of this story happens as Abram intercepts them. But do you notice anything about the first king mentioned here in chapter 14? Uh, they, you're seeing a lot of names. They might not mean a whole lot to us, but I just want to point out one. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Shinar is the plain where the Tower of Babel, later Babylon, was constructed. A symbol of wickedness and self-worship. And I think this, this just frames the ensuing conflict as an expression of grabbing for power and worshiping man and his own kingdom, an in indicator of what the nations were doing while Abram is trying to follow this trail of promises made by Yahweh. Interestingly, this war 
which started as a revolt against Ketelamer, king of Elam, has nothing to do with Abram until this conquest continues south as Sodom is ransacked and Lot is taken captive. Lot then continues to be an example of the fallout from disregarding God's word, wandering further from his safety and blessing. We're told that in verse 13, one who had escaped from Sodom came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anir. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken, he led forth his trained men. To be clear, this is not something that God has called Abram to do. However, Abram, I believe, in his zeal for the Lord, is determined to, one, free his nephew, two, put a stop to the reckless conquest of these kings, and three, to stake a claim that this land is worth defending because it's been promised by God. So what does he do? He takes his trained men to try and defeat these kings. Now, this is a barrier because to, to God fulfilling his promises because we have to ask ourselves, what if Abram dies in this battle? What happens to the promise if Abram dies? How does Abram respond? He seems to be proceeding with a sense of resolve, and the Lord enables Abram to somehow defeat five kings and their armies via a surprise attack with 318 men, allowing him to rescue Lot specifically. When we think of a warrior leader, we think of David. But here, Abram is acting as God's agent and deliverer and, frankly, a kingly figure. It seems that the coward of Egypt has changed to become further assured that God will stick to his promise, even if in this moment his own life is at stake. What's God's take on this whole endeavor? How does he show his power and grace? Well, we learn that he was behind Abram's victory, and he voices his approval of Abram's faith in a really unique way. We're told of this meeting that takes place. Victorious Abram, the king of Sodom, and the king of Salem. The king of Salem, named Melchizedek, greets Abram, and he essentially celebrates his victory. But then we read some interesting things about this king of Salem, who has yet to be mentioned here. First, Moses, the author, inserts this, this note. He, Melchizedek, was a priest of God Most High. Hmm, that's interesting. Who then blesses Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. To which Abram responded by worshiping God, by giving Melchizedek, this previously unmentioned king, a tenth of everything that he has. He does so, all the while refusing the demands of the king of Sodom, not just to turn down an offer, but to prove that Abram's resolve to be faithful to God stands in opposition to making himself indebted to anyone else as if they were his deliverer and not God. Abram is loyal to Yahweh, and he will not give someone else the opportunity to steal credit or glory away from Yahweh for granting him the victory, even to the point of passing on any rewards to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, who are, who are his allies. He knows that he doesn't have to choose greed. Yahweh will 
take care of him. As was mentioned last week by Pastor Dan, Abram was commended for his faith in the unseen true God and his promises in instances like this. Now, all of this background serves a very important purpose, which is to show us, point number two, that God Most High is the guarantor of his own promises. God Most High is the guarantor of his own promises. Now, I'm sure you have many, many questions about Melchizedek. I have still many, many questions about Melchizedek. We don't have time to peel back every layer, but Melchizedek proves to be a key player in this text because he's the one through whom God blesses Abram again. But scripture is almost silent on this guy. There's a very important reference to him in Psalm 110 when it speaks about an anointed king who is also made a priest forever. But otherwise, we don't hear about him until much, much later in scripture. What we know is that he has no genealogy, no lineage. He just appears on the scene. He's the king of Salem, which is the word for peace. As you know, names are often very symbolic in scripture. And then his name, Melchizedek, has two parts, king and righteousness. This man is, in a very real way, king of peace. And he is the king of righteousness and also priest of God Most High, the same God who Abram worships. You feel like Abram's all alone. He's the only one that trusts God. But in appears this man who is also not just one who is following God Most High, but a priest, someone in authority and who mediates. So in addition to all of that, this, this man who we know very little about seems to become more and more significant because he also, think priest, he also serves as a symbol of God's presence, showing that God, showing to Abraham that God is powerful and trustworthy to bless him and to keep those promises. But that's all we know. That's literally all the details that we know about Melchizedek. We don't hear about him again until Hebrews. When the writer of Hebrews wants to point the eyes of persecuted believers to God to give them reason to endure, I'm just thinking about trying to picture a brother or sister in Gaza who is worshiping God and who, who's following him and the confusion. The writer of Hebrews is writing to people like that, persecuted believers. He wants to point their eyes to God to give them reason to endure and to keep trusting, keep trusting in spite of the terrible things they're enduring. He points them to Christ by referencing Melchizedek, the barely mentioned king of Salem. We have to ask ourselves, why? What's so special about Melchizedek? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
This is his grand hope. He is hoping that these believers will have hope all the way until the end and that they'd patiently believe that they will inherit the promises of God. Friends, this is also our hope as pastors for this church family and our hope for one another as well, that we'd be steadfast in faith and would imitate men like Abram who patiently waited until the promise, promises of God were fulfilled. Now listen to how he assures them in the next verse. For when God made a promise to Abraham, this takes place in Genesis 22, this little bit ahead of the story. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, this is what he did. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God makes a promise, swears by himself, so that you know it's not going anywhere. We have this. What's this? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, and here's our story, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, Melchizedek, is first by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Friends, Melchizedek arrives on the scene for a brief moment to show us someone to look for. There are many who, who think that this appearance, because it's so mysterious, this appearance of Melchizedek is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He's, Christ is kind of showing up as a blip on the radar. Um, but nonetheless, it's supposed to tip, give us a tip on someone to look for, someone who would be a priest forever, not a Levite priest who just, whose lineage determines whether he's a priest or not, someone who could ensure that the anchor of our souls would hold to go into the inner place behind the curtain so he must be a high priest and to cleanse us from our sins. That someone is Jesus, who like Melchizedek, has become a priest, not by lineage, but by the power of his indestructible life, as Hebrews says. So Melchizedek was an appearance of a man who resembled the Son of God to bless Abram. He, that, this war scenario is set up so that Melchizedek can enter the scene and bless Abraham, assure Abraham of God's promise. In church, we have a much greater assurance of God's promise than Abram because our 
Lord and God has appeared to us in the form of his son. Just as Melchizedek served as the king of righteousness, the king of peace who appeared to Abraham pointing true north towards his future hope of a promise fulfilled, Jesus Christ has appeared to us as a priest like Melchizedek, the true king of peace, the true king of righteousness, our priest, our mediator between us and God most high to do what? To point us to true north and to prove to his weak and struggling and exasperated people that God's promise is not hindered by any barrier. In fact, because of his forever priesthood, Hebrews 7 loudly proclaims, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Which means right now, in our variety of situations and various trials and unknowns about tomorrow, you can have hope. Hope that will not be put to shame. Hope that will not be betrayed, but will be fulfilled. Friends, Jesus did come to us to save us. He came into the world to save sinners. But he rose from the dead and lives now as a lasting proof that his promise is not going anywhere. That's why he ever lives to intercede for us. He is praying on our behalf. This is what he is filling his time with as the risen Lord. He is pleading for you to trust him. He is inviting the, the Trinity's power to say, make the promises that I have made to this person hold and make them real to them. Make them solidified. Make them uh, lean on them. Stand on them firmly. This is one of the stated purposes of why he lives, why he has conquered the grave. It's for you and I, so that we know that the things, the trials, the, the unknowns that we are walking through, we need that constant assurance that his promise is going nowhere. God most high, our Lord Jesus Christ, is not hindered by anything while he lives and intercedes and saves. Not by famine, not by conflict, not by war, not by a curse, not by a powerful enemy, not by a cross, not by a grave. So also, not by an illness, not by any wicked person, not by guilt because of your past sin, nothing, which means nothing, will hinder the promise of God in Jesus Christ. He is its own guarantor. He will see it through to the end. Who will raise us up on the last day? He will. Who will not lose or forsake or reject any of those who are his? He will not. He will remain faithful. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ will. Who will sanctify you and keep you blameless? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Who will complete the work that he has started in you? Not somebody else. He will. Who will put all of his enemies under his feet? He will. Who will continue to save others 
and accomplish his plans in and through you. He will. Church, we heard last week in Hebrews 11 that faith in this God and his promise drove Abram to leave Ur. It motivated him to take his son later, as we'll read, to the top of a mountain and prepare to sacrifice him as an act of faith in God's ability to even raise him from the dead. If you came in here with an underlying buzz of wondering whether God is really trustworthy with this thing or that situation, friends, let me tell you, he is that trustworthy. He is that trustworthy, which leads me to ask just two questions by way of application this morning. The first is, what do you perceive as a barrier to God fulfilling his promises to you? What do you perceive as a barrier that prevents God from being with you, that prevents him from being on your side, that prevents him from working good for you, that prevents him from being committed to bringing you home to live with him forever? I hope that this doesn't sound remotely presumptuous, especially after seeing God's hand in Abram's life. But, you know, I think we can all say together that whatever that very real thing is, that perceived barrier, it is not a hindrance of God to stay, God staying faithful to his word and loyal to his word. It's not. It is not a hindrance to him. In this story, God was up against famine, foolishness, Pharaoh, negotiations, war, and yet through his mighty power and grace, he preserved his promise. What is it that you feel stands in the way? Is it a person? Is it a vote or a condition or a series of events or your history or compiled problems or money? And how can you, by faith, as it requires faith, to bring those up against God's faithfulness once again, to both admit that he is not hindered by this thing and also to worship him in dependent trust even when it feels impossible? The second question, you may already know the answer to it, or you may want to dwell on it for just a bit. How is he inviting you to proceed in faith and trust in these promises? There was a noticeable difference between Abram in Egypt and Abram later, or between Lot and Abram. The difference was a devotion to God and his ways leading to act upon what he has said. Where is God inviting you to act in faith? In other words, if you believed fully that he will reward every sacrifice you'd ever make for the sake of his name, which Matthew 19 says, would you be more inclined to sacrifice what you prize most in this life, whether it be a home or a property or job security or your reputation or your time? If you and I believed that he is near to the brokenhearted and that he binds their wounds and that he weeps with people, how might your grief just even slightly be changed? If you and I believed that the suffering you are enduring will be turned for good, how might it bolster you in some form today? If you and I believed that God himself is truly with us, with us wherever we go, where might we go? What might we do for his glory? If we knew that, if we were sure of that, 
And if you and I believe that he will raise us up on the last day, how might you feel more free to give yourself as a living sacrifice to him? Abram knew increasingly that this God is faithful to what he says, and that changed things for him. And it can change things for us as well. Abram saw things from afar, but we have seen the, the person who brings hope for the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Paul calls him the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. Jesus Christ, our great priest and great king.